Well, today's message is entitled Courageous Repentance. Repentance is a really um, exciting word in church, isn't it? Courageous repentance. Today we're going to do three things. Number one, I'm going to talk to you about repentance. Then we're going to look at the, the, our, our last week in Ezra, Ezra, Ezra 7 to 10, and we're going to look how the people were courageously repentant. And then I'm going to challenge you around where's an area in your life where you're going to be where you need to repent. And it might mean making some courageous steps to do that. Does that sound okay? If it doesn't, bad luck. That's what we're doing. That's what I've prepared. So that's what we're going with. So I just wanted to give you the outline because it's a bit long. It's about 45 minutes. It's a bit long, about 15 minutes longer than normal. Hang in there because I think it's worth it. I want to take you back to Tuesday night, the 11th of, to Tuesday night, the 11th of June, a couple of weeks ago. I was at, I was at home. It was six o'clock, and Josh Seckel, Josh played bass this morning. Josh is here. Josh, wave at us. There he is. Josh was at my house, and um, it was a school leadership night, so Josh came at 6. We had our one-on-one catch-up, and the, the, the school leadership was coming at 7.30, and Michelle was organizing dinner, and, and she called in and said, hey, guys, dinner's ready. So Josh and I stopped our meeting, went out into the kitchen, and I looked at the food, and, and the food was on the stove, and Michelle said, uh, serve yourselves. And at that, um, something, something clicked. And I went, what? Why didn't you serve it up for us? That's, that's your responsibility. Sure, you should have served that up. Remember the message is courageous repentance? <laughs> courageous repentance? Now, now I, uh, I, uh, I, could make, I could make excuses that I was tired and I was busy, but whatever, it was not okay. So later, I had to go to Michelle and say, Michelle, you know what? I, I did the wrong thing. I shouldn't have spoke to you that way. Um, it was wrong. And M- Michelle, no doubt, said, yes, you should have said the sorry for that. It was pretty bad. But I'm sure she didn't. Here's a question for you this morning. How do you respond when you've done the wrong thing? How do you respond when you've done the wrong thing? Notice the question doesn't say, have you ever done the wrong thing? Because <laughs> that's a no-brainer, isn't it? How do you respond when you've done and you do? Because we continue to get the wrong, we do the wrong thing. How do you respond? Here are some, here are some responses. Number one, maybe you try to cover it up. You tell lies, you do things to try and cover up the thing you've done wrong. Maybe you say sorry because you know it's the right thing to do, but actually there's no, there's no remorse. You're just trying to make it all nice so you say sorry to, to cover it all over. Maybe you do nothing because you think saying sorry is soft or weak. Yeah? Maybe you justify your actions. Well, the reason I did that because of this and this and this and this, and then maybe you blame others. Well, it's your fault that I did that. I acted that way because of what you did. Or do you take responsibility for what you've done? And friends, that's exactly what God wants us to do. He wants to take responsibility. And, and when we do the wrong thing, God wants us to come to him. And he wants us to respond this way. He wants us to, number one, recognize our error. Number two, he wants us to say sorry for what we've done. Three, ask for forgiveness. And finally, Choose to live differently. And friends, those four things is a definition of what? Does anyone know? Repentance, it is. Repentance is not just saying sorry. Repentance is, re- is not just recognizing you got it wrong. Repentance is, I got it wrong, I'm sorry, forgive me, and live differently. It's a U-turn. You might have noticed what Andrew's putting on um, Facebook. These are our getting you ready for Sundays on Instagram and Facebook. There's a, there's a U-turn. Repentance is, I'm living this direction, I recognize it's wrong, 
God, I'm sorry, it's wrong. I choose direction. I choose to live in a different way. And, and, and when we do the wrong thing, the, the, very, first and the, the very first conversation we, we, should, we should be having, the first person we should be going to is, 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 is the Lord. Repentance towards God. That's, that is the first thing we should be doing. Because God sees sin very seriously. Sin is a very serious thing. Now, for us today, um, where the world's standards are heading south, where people are, are doing stuff that's just ungodly and it's becoming normal and okay, that's easy to wash over into the church. It's easy for us to get our right and wrong through what the world says is right and wrong. But as Christians, that's not, that's not how it works. God sets the standard. His word sets this is right, this is wrong, and this is how we choose to live. And for God, you know, God sees sin so seriously, so seriously, that he sent his son, God, God the son came and died on a cross. He, Jesus had the most horrible death. His body was pierced. He was flogged. He was, it was horrific. Hung naked there. Horrific, horrific, horrific. That is, that is how serious God sees sin, that God himself would give himself as a way for our sin to be forgiven. Sin's very serious. And then when we do sin, and we all do it, the Bible's clear on that, we then do the repentance thing. We recognize our error. We say sorry. We ask for forgiveness. And then we choose to live differently. That is repentance. And, and as Christians, this choose to live differently means we choose to stay away from sin. We choose to not sin. Now, we still do, but we should aim not to. And the reason we should, we should try to not sin is because God hates it. And the one who saved us, the one who loved us, the one who's given himself for us, surely we want to honor him with our lives. And so we should turn away, sin because, away from sin because God hates it. We should turn away from sin because Jesus paid for it. And more sin, more sin that Jesus has to pay for. And although there is forgiveness for when we do the wrong thing, sin, ongoing sin, hinders our relationship with God. Our prayers, like there's blockages in our prayers, it's like we are, don't hear God clearly. And, and, and when we continue to disobey God, we are out of alignment with his will. And when you're out of, when, when you're out of alignment with his will, you miss, miss out on the blessings he has for your life. You want to live a life in God's will and receive the blessings, you've got to live, live in accordance with his will. Repentance towards God. But there's also repentance towards others. Sometimes... It's appropriate for when you do the wrong thing to go to the person you've hurt and do the repentance thing. Recognize your error. Say sorry. Here it is again. Ask for forgiveness and choose to live differently. Now, I say sometimes because sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes the person's passed away. Or maybe the person's in another part of the planet. You have no contact with them. Or maybe if you've hurt someone so much, you going to them is actually going to make it much, 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 much worse for that person. And maybe it's not appropriate. But generally... The case is that when we do the wrong thing by somebody, we, we go to them and say, hey, I'm sorry, I've hurt you, it was wrong, please forgive me, I'm going to try and not do that anymore. That's repentance. Now, the thing about repentance, fans, the thing about repentance is that repentance can cost you. Repentance can be costly. If you've been cheating on your tax return, it's about to hit tax time, that all happens again, how exciting, every year. Who's getting a tax return this year? A, a good one? Who has to pay tax this year? You poor things, yeah. Exciting. If you've been cheating on your tax return, repentance means 
No longer cheat on your tax return. And therefore, you're going to have less money in your pocket, which means it's going to cost you. Repentance can cost you. Repentance might mean going to someone, going to someone you've hurt and having a hard conversation with them. And it puts you in an awkward spot. It puts them in an awkward spot. That is costly, but it's, we'll get them in a minute. The next thing I'm going to say, it's worthwhile. Repentance can cost you your personal satisfaction. If you're doing things that, that, that are ungodly, that please your flesh, where you're looking at things you shouldn't look at, if you're overeating, if you're doing things to make yourself feel good and it's out of God's will, the, the cost of repentance is that that desire no longer gets fed. There's a cost to repentance. It might, might mean repaying a debt. It might mean making different lifestyle choices. It costs you, but friends, repentance is worth it. It is, it is so worth it. Because when you repent, when you say sorry, that, that, that shame, that guilt that you're carrying, friends, gets lifted. You, you align yourself with God's will for your life, which opens up all these doors and possibilities because God is saying, this person's walking in my will. I can use them for this. I can use them for that. I can... Immense things open up as you live his way. It looks like trusting him with your life where you don't have to worry because you're living his way. It, it removes blockages to intimacy with God. There are many benefits to being repentant. So here's the question for you today. And this is the big one we're going, to, we're going to ask here. And I'm going to ask it again at the end of the message. This is the get real piece. This is the take action piece for us. For us, here it is. What would courageous repentance look like for you? Now, this is a moment not just to look at Nathan and go, wow, he's a handsome young man, isn't he? And I emphasize young, not so much handsome. But this is the time for you to actually reflect and maybe even pray and say, God, what is the thing that I need to be repentant about? And it might be courageous for you to change that. It might be a big step. Take a few seconds. Ask the Lord. Part one done, part two of the message this morning. This is our last week in Ezra. And Ezra, the reason, we're, the reason I'm talking about courageous repentance today is because there is a moment at the end of this chapter where there's this courageous repentance and it's extreme and it blew my mind. I went, what is this? And I'm going to ask your opinion on it later. We've done Ezra chapter one through six. Ezra chapter seven starts this way. Ezra chapter seven starts this. After... These things. He's talking about what, what's just happened. So it's about the year um, 458, about BC. The temple's been built. They built the foundations. They finished it off. It's been 60 years. They've had the celebrations. The temple's done. 60 years later, those three words. They've, they've, they've been doing the sacrifice at the temple. 60 years later, after these things, it says, during the reign of Artaxerxes, apparently Artaxerxes II, king of Persia, Ezra, son of da 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 verse 6, this Ezra came from Babylon. Now, Ezra was, was a priest. He knew the Mosaic law, the law from Moses that God gave the, the, the Jews. Remember, we're Old Testament, Old Covenant, a different way of living to what we're living now. Um, Ezra's living in Babylon, and God rises up Ezra. And Ezra chapter 7 tells us that 
King Artaxerxes, like God did with King Cyrus back in chapter 1, King Darius, I think, in chapter, oh, I've forgotten, 5 or 6. King Artaxerxes in 7 says, Ezra, you go and take as many people with you, and I'm going to pay for it again. Like over and over again, God does this. And, and, and I want you to go back, King Artaxerxes says, and set up the uh, Jewish Mosaic law, um, the, the uh, Jewish way of living like God wanted them to live in Jerusalem for your people. That's Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 8, Ezra, Ezra leaves Babylon. And it's a four-month journey getting from Babylon to Jerusalem. And Ezra chapter 8 tells you, the, tells you about the journey. Ezra chapter 9 Ezra lands in Jerusalem. And this is what we see in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. It says, after these things had been done, Ezra's got to Jerusalem with some more people with the idea of making sure that people are living in the way that God wanted them to based on the Mosaic law. He says, after these things have, had been done, the leaders, important, the leaders came to him, Ezra, and said, this is not Ezra. This is the leaders came to Ezra, the guru of, of, of the Jewish faith. And this is what we're told. The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. Like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Vegemites, and the Termites, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons. Hear that? Verse 2. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for their sons, for themselves and their sons, and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So the Jewish people married people outside their faith. Now that was a big, big problem. A thousand years earlier, God spoke to Moses about this from Deuteronomy chapter 7. And this is before, so the people haven't yet got into the promised land. They're about to get into the promised land. And this is what God says to the people, his people, about going into the promised land, about what to do with these nations that are already living there. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land of um, the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you the many nations... The Hittites, the Vegemites, the Termites are all there again. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Now you can read that and go, oh, that's really rough. That's, that, that's really tough, rough. But let me tell you about these people. These people were so, so wicked. So wicked. They used to sacrifice their children to idols. There's one of these, a number of the statues were like this, and they had like made of metal, and they would put a fire under, this is R-rated, R18 plus, so if you're under 18, put your fingers in your ears. They, they would heat the arms up, and then they would put the babies on the arms as a sacrifice to these idols. This is, this is the sort of practices. They were involved in all types of sexual stuff. They had temples where they had sex, temple prostitution. It was, it was really, really wicked. It goes on to say this, make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Then in verse 3, do not intermarry with them. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. 
Why? Didn't want God intermingling, intermarrying? Before they will turn your children away from following me to serve their God, that would be a really bad influence. It was a big problem. Let's just move that to today for a minute. Let's talk about marrying unbelievers. I told you we're going to do some heavy stuff today. Heavy stuff today. Now, that's Old Covenant, New Covenant. In the New Covenant, we're not, we are no longer told to wipe people out as they were told to do back then. We don't do that anymore. We're now called to be salt and light and love and shine the light of Jesus into a dark world. Yeah? Thankfully. Imagine doing that. I couldn't do that. I mean, I don't know, God. That would be just the worst. Praise God we live in this new covenant. Amen? But the principle of marrying within Christianity is the same. That God wants us only to marry people within the Christian faith. The Bible says it in two places in the New Testament. Here it is. It says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers in 2 Corinthians. And here about a woman, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Lord, In other words, a Christian, a woman who's lost a husband, she's going to remarry. That's fine. But he must belong to the Lord. And friends, it makes total sense. Because if you're a Christian, who's the most important thing in your life? He is. And you choose to honor him and love him and serve him and take his priorities and and, 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 and follow his will for your life. And if, and if you marry another Christian, they have the same desire to honor Jesus and follow him and follow his desires and walk in his will. And you're setting yourself up for great success. It doesn't mean it's going to, some marriages don't work. We know that. But you're setting yourself up for great success. But imagine marrying someone who's not a believer, where Jesus isn't their number one thing. Something else is. And, if, and for most unbelievers, it's himself. They think they're the most important thing. And sometimes as Christians, we sometimes act that way too, don't we? We act like we're the most important thing rather than he is. But an, but an unbeliever hasn't got Jesus as the center like we do. And therefore, their priorities are different. The way they want to spend their time and their finances are different. As a Christian, you want to go and hang out with other Christians at church and celebrate, and they want you at home with them. It creates tension. You talk about how you want to spend your money, and as a Christian, you want to honor the Lord with your money, but then as an unbeliever, now why would I give money to the church? That's... And it doesn't make any sense to me, which, makes, which totally makes sense, doesn't it? And then you, and then you want to raise children. And as, as a Christian, you want your kids to follow Jesus as the number one most important thing. And, you, and your partner thinks, well, well whatever. And, and, and your partner might even be supportive of you, like going to church and all that sort of stuff. But, you, but you're still not aligned around agenda and around direction. And that's why the Bible's clear on Christians, married Christians, young people today, Christians, married Christians. But let me also say this, it doesn't always happen. And Christians sometimes marry unbelievers. And let me say, if you've done that, it's not God's best, but there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness for that. And you come to God and he'll forgive you. Now, that doesn't mean you end the marriage. Hear this clearly. No, you are married. You've made a covenant before the Lord, a covenant before others, and you are now one flesh. And you are to stay in that marriage, yeah? Stay in that marriage and, and, and a model model. Model Jesus to them, love them, serve them, show them how wonderful this Christian, Christian life is and pray for them. Pray for them and get the people around you praying for them and let's believe they're going to come to know Jesus as well. Is that okay? That's the first hard thing. It gets harder. I want to take you to how Ezra responds. Remember, the leaders have come to Ezra and the leaders have said to Ezra, the people have married have, have intermarried, which is really bad. Ezra knows that. Everyone knows that. 
Look at Ezra's response. Ezra chapter 9, the next verse, verse 3. When I, Ezra, he's talking in, 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 in the, oh, is that first tense, present tense? What's that English teaches? First tense. Is that first tense? First person. Thank you. Who said that? Genius. Oh, year 12 student. Very good. <laughs> when I heard this first person, I, 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 I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled their hair. Pulled, I'll read it again. When Ezra heard this, I tore my tunic. Now, I could have done it. Imagine that. That'd be cool. Should have done that. And, and, and cloak. Pulled, we're going to ask Con for this. Pulled hair from my head and beard. Pulled out stuff and sat down appalled. That is a radical response. He's shocked by what the people have done. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the Lord of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. The rest of chapter 9 is a prayer that Ezra prays to the Lord, remembering the wickedness of the people throughout history. And God, we've done it again. We're here again. But then something extraordinary happens. Beginning of chapter 9, we read this. Some of, the, some of the leaders of the people came to Ezra with an idea. This was the idea. They say to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away. You with me here? To send away all these women and their children. Everyone, everyone did you see what I just read? Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord, that's Ezra, and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Now when I read that, I went, holy dooly. Holy dooly. What do you do with that? Was that the right decision? It's interesting that the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 2, was written at a similar time. When they don't know exact dates. They say 20 years later, but they're unsure. In Malachi chapter 2, written a prophet, um, the last prophet in the Old Testament, writes at a similar time as the people, um, as Ezra's in Jerusalem. And this is what the Lord says. He says, For I hate divorce says the Lord, the God of Israel. But then, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, God permits divorce. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house and it goes on to talk about her marrying another woman and they get divorced and they can't come back. But in this, God gives permission for divorce. So what we have here. A thousand years earlier, God gives permission for divorce, but we have Malachi saying that God hates divorce. So what do you do with that? Jesus picks up this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 24. um, Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, the the, um, religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now this passage, if if you read this passage, you might be reminded of this. For any and every reason. Because they took Deuteronomy 24 where it says, if your wife displeases you, well, if she gets fat, if she gets wrinkly, if she gets gray hair, if she doesn't cook very nice, if she doesn't use the vacuum cleaner properly, we'll get rid of her. 
That was the attitude. What do we think about that, men? No! Men, shocking. Shocking. But we could threaten it, couldn't we, men? We could threaten it. You better vacuum that floor better or else. No, horrible. And this is how Jesus responds. This is how Jesus responds. This is how Jesus responds to them. He says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, divorce was not the best. It goes on to say this. Why then, he, they asked, well, why did Moses, um, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? In other words, why did God give us divorce? Why did Moses give us divorce? And Jesus responds like this. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Why? Because you busted up broken people. Because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. God gave us divorce because he knows we're messed up. He knows we're broken. He knows that some people just can't work it out. They can't get it together. And therefore, he says, you can, you can have this. I hate it, Malachi says. It's not God's the best because in the beginning... But it was not this way from the beginning. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife accepts sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus says that in the passages before that it was not this way in the beginning. God made them male and female and they were joined together and they're to be one and one for all their lives. Divorce is not God's best. It's actually awful. I've had um, the privilege, if you use that word, to journey with people. Through divorce, and let me tell you, it's really bad. I was speaking to someone who was told by another, I was speaking to a divorce lady last week, two weeks ago, and she was told by someone um, who, who's, who's, who's experienced a similar thing, it, it would have been better for my husband to die than for me to go through this divorce. Hence, now, pain, we're talking about pain, how much pain this has caused me. Divorce is awful. I've never experienced it, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But apparently it's just some of the worst thing you could ever experience. Because you're getting these people that are now one. They're connected. Yeah? And they get ripped apart. Broken. Hurt. Horrible. And yet, and that's why God says, like, it's not that way from the beginning. It's it's not God's best. Stick together. So let's go back to Ezra. God hates divorce. He, he permitted divorce. These people got married. And then he says to them, I want you to, and then God doesn't say this. God doesn't say this. And nowhere in the Old Testament or New Testament does it say this, that if you marry someone you shouldn't have married, divorce them. It doesn't say that anywhere. So the people of Ezra made a decision to divorce their wives. Did they make the right decision? So I'm going to give you an option. You get to vote. Because I don't know the answer. Some people, some commentators say, yes, they did the right thing because it's old covenant. They should have nothing to do with them. It was the right thing to divorce. Other people say, well, they're married. Therefore, they're now one flesh and God hates that. So they should stay together. But then there's a third group that says, I don't know the answer. So you get three options. I shouldn't give you the third one, should I? So, if it's, so I'm going to ask, who thinks they did the right thing? Vote. One, two. Three, four, five, six, hands down. Who thinks they did the wrong thing? Vote. 
One, two, seven, eight. Hands down. Who hasn't got a clue? Yeah, we haven't got a clue. Haven't got a clue. And you know what? The beauty of this is that we don't really need to know because it's old covenant. It doesn't relate to us today. Because what they did, it's an old covenant that doesn't relate. We have a new covenant. So I now need to speak to you about divorce in the New Testament. Oh, it's going to get really rocky now. So, oh, Tony, what a good question. Tony, just asked the question, why get married if you're going to get divorced? Well, I don't think anyone goes into marriage with the expectation of getting divorced. No one wants to get divorced, Tony. You might as well say single. Yeah. And, and for the Apostle Paul talks about that's a, that's a gift of celibacy. Yeah. Gift of celibacy. So in the New Testament, there are two occasions where Jesus says there are, Jesus says there's, no, not Jesus. Jesus says one, the Apostle Paul says another that I found. I could have missed some. But it seems there's two, two reasons why it's okay to get divorced in the New Testament. Here they are. Number one is this, sexual, sexual immorality in marriage. Matthew 19. Jesus just, the passage I just read. Um, if it's sexual immorality, Jesus says it's okay to get divorced. Now, not everyone does, and some people reconcile, and if you can do that, awesome. But some people don't, but that seems like it's okay. The other reason is this. Unbeliever leaves a marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it talks about that two, two unbelievers marry. One of them gets saved. This person who's not saved just hates it so much that they leave. It says in this passage that this, this, this person is no longer bound. The word bound is used. They're no longer bound to this person. So it seems like it's okay to get divorced in that area. I'm now going to give you a third reason, which is not in the New Testament. I'll say that again. I'm going to give you a third reason that's not in the New Testament. And the reason I give this is because I think it's right and, and because most, I, think, I can't say most, lots of Christian leaders also support this. And here it is here. Continuing abuse. If you're in a relationship and you're continually abused and it's not safe for you, get out. Get out. They're the three. Well, two. Two biblical ones and one I've added. Now, people get, let me, I need to say this, that people get divorced for reasons outside that. Yeah, they do, and it happens. But it seems like from the New Testament, these are the reasons why God says it's okay to get divorced. Not forgotten what I was about to say. Mm, that's right. In Matthew chapter 19, remember the people at the time of Jesus were divorcing their wives for any and every reason. And Jesus says it wasn't that way from the beginning. I think our society is looking a lot like that now. That people get divorced for any and every reason. They just go, oh, this is too hard, I'm out. No. Christians, no. Work at it. Pursue it. Get Help, talk to somebody. And every marriage goes, every marriage goes through hard, hard times. It's true. It's true. That was very loud, Charles Pretorius. Um, that was Charles Pretorius on the recording. Charles Pretorius said that. Who, who would agree that marriage is tough? Yeah, it is. Haven't tried it? It is tough. It is tough. Christians, hang in there. Keep going. Unless it's one of these reasons. Keep going. Keep loving. Make it work, because marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. God has given himself for his bride. The bride is described as the church, which is the people. And that we are in, as Christians, we're in a marriage relationship with God. 
that we have become one flesh. If you read Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about the man and the woman, and then he flips it. To this. I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. There's this connectedness between us and Jesus, and that's the picture that marriage brings. So God gives us pictures of what it's like in the heavenly so we understand it. And there it is there. The last thing I want to say on all this is, before we end this message, is there is forgiveness. If you're a Christian and you've been divorced for a reason that's not on here, friends, there is forgiveness. Your life is not over. Your life is not finished. You have a future. God is not finished with you yet. We get it wrong. We all get it wrong. And divorce is just another area of getting it wrong. Yeah? It's no greater sin than the next thing. They're all sin. There is forgiveness. There is restitution. There is reconciliation with the Lord. And you can keep going forward and God can use you. Amen? Amen. Let's go back to this passage in Ezra and let's talk about this courageous repentance. Now, whether or not, whether or not the people in this letter in Ezra, the people at the time did the right thing or did the wrong thing by divorcing their wives and sending their children away. And as I say that, just think about, just think about what, that would, what that would have been like for those women and children. You're living with your husband, and at the time, women didn't do the work thing like they do in society today. The man was the guy responsible. And that was sent away. Now, we're not told details. The end of chapter 10 tells us, in Ezra chapter 10, lists all the people who divorced their wives. It's in the, in the Old Testament. Wow. Sent away, where did they go? Who looked after them? Like... It would have been horrific, I would assume, for those women and children. And for the men that sent them away, you've, you've, you've married this, the love of your life. And you have children with them and you send them away. Oh, your heart would be ripped out. And yet, what impresses me here, whether or not, whether or not the decision was right or wrong, in their mind, it was wrong. And what impresses me is their courageous response to what they thought was sin. So I'm not saying rightly or wrongly, like I'm not not going there. What I'm saying is they thought what they did was so wrong that they were willing to go to extreme acts to repent, to say, sorry, I'm wrong, and change direction. If, friend, that is courageous, courageous repentance. They put honouring God, what they thought was honouring God, above their earthly, their earthly relationships. That is a massive challenge. So, coming back to the question for you today is this. What would courageous repentance look like for you? Remember what repentance is? God wants us to respond this way. It's to recognise our error. It's to say Sorry. Ask for forgiveness and then choose to live differently. That's what repentance is. What would courageous repentance look like for you? Maybe it's giving up a habit, a habit that you know God hates. Looking at pornography, excessive television, excessive eating, excessive whatever. Working, excess work. Maybe your repentance is choosing to forgive someone who's hurt you. 
Maybe it's handing over control, handing over control of an area of your life that you're holding on to too tightly. Maybe it's giving God a dream, changing direction, apologizing to someone who's hurt you. Maybe it's repaying a debt, mending a relationship. What is it for you? And courageous repentance, friends, remember I said it can be costly because it might mean having a hard conversation. It might be going without. It might mean missing out, but it's so worth it because the shame, the guilt lifts, the, the relationships are reconciled, and you are walking the walk, the will God has for you, which opens up opportunities that you're never going to get when you're outside his will. What is courageous repentance? What does it look like for you today?